So today we are continuing in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, just a reminder where we're picking up from where we left off a few weeks ago. Uh, this is Matthew, chapter, uh, the end of chapter 23. And before we get into it, I want to thank everyone that stepped in while I was gone. Thank you to Ngiwi, uh, who uh, stepped in uh, two weeks ago. I appreciate that. More than stepped in, came in and, and delivered the word. And also uh, Benji and Brianna for helping out last week and stepping in and doing the same. Uh, appreciate that opportunity. And one of the things I'd like to do uh, in the future, and I'm just kind of going off the top of my head now. I should get back to what I'm talking about. But... Uh, <laughs> I want to develop a group of people that would be willing to step in and, and, uh, and preach uh, during times that I'm gone. And uh, so I'm going to set up a time and just kind of go through a basic uh, training program for people who would like to, to learn how to be able to, to do this, uh, to fill in uh, while I'm gone. And so if you're interested in that, uh, you're going to be hearing more about it. I'm going to set up a time and we're going to start going through basically a three, probably a three session process on just basic sermon building and how to, how to go about doing this. Not that you'd be doing it a whole lot, but uh, during that time when I'm gone, so it's not just all falling on a few shoulders. So we're back in the Gospel of Matthew, and uh, we're ending chapter 23, which, which ends with the last two of the woes. Remember we talked about the seven woes that Jesus is giving to the Pharisees. Woe to you, you Pharisees, you hypocrites. And these are the last two ones we're going to be looking at. But before we get into the scripture, I think uh, you've heard me say before that one of the, the things that helps us, I think, kind of understand uh, some of the strange motivations that people have is that we very often feel like that we are the heroes of our story. And what that means is that we very often, just as a human species, tend to think of ourselves on the side of right. No matter how many people are against us, we have a tendency to think that we are right even when we're told we're wrong, even when we're told by wrong, we're wrong by people that we care about. And we see that kind of division going on right now where there's a lot of very strong opinions in the world about pretty much everything. It's a very polarized world right now. And everyone very much believes they are the hero of their story. They are right. And this can also go extend from individuals into an entire community or an entire country. Or in, and in my case... As, I, as you know, I come from the United States. Uh, many of the nations in the New World, the United States, Canada, uh, South America, Central America, all these places that were, were colonized in the last 200 or 300 years or so brought with them very often a legacy of racism. And that racism was expressed primarily in two ways. One was in the treatment of indigenous people, which was pretty, they were just pretty much wiped out or attacked. And the other was the legacy of slavery. And you've probably noticed I talk about race and slavery probably more than you might expect, but I need to give you some background. I come from the, uh, the Southern Baptist background uh, in the U.S. It's the largest Protestant denomination in the United States. Now, if you remember, in the United States, Protestant just means anything not Catholic. It's not the, the exact same definition as you have in Germany. So there's like, I think, 20 million, around 20 million or so Southern Baptists in the United States. And, there, and obviously the name tells you it's in the South. And while they've done many great things and I benefited from them deeply, they have within their history a legacy of racism. And that also came out very strongly in the late 1800s 
when the Civil War in the United States took place, which is in 1860 to 1865, where the Southern Baptist Church split from the rest of the, the, the Baptists. You had Northern Baptists and Southern Baptists. And primarily it was over this idea of race and slavery. And so it's a dark stain. It's a dark legacy uh, in my background. And so when I was in seminary in the 1990s, I wanted to figure this out. I wanted to know how people were thinking. How could they, how could people who professed to be Christians and by their writings and by many of their actions seem to indeed believe and live this Christian faith at the same time justify slavery, justify owning other human beings. I found that so incongruous that during one of my papers, I studied history and theology in the seminary. I went deep into this question. And it's an interesting one because you can actually still read the, the original writings of a lot of these people that lived in the, the 1800s that were kind of in this place of thinking. And I want to say to everyone here as I, as I kind of express their point of view, I don't agree with their point of view. And also when I use terms like advanced, less advanced, I'm using their terminology. I'm not saying I agree with the terminology. But to boil the whole thing down into a very simple uh, you know, way to explain where they were coming from, which involved you know, pseudoscience, poor theology, a whole lot of things, they basically believed... The Christians who were in the 1700s and 1800s who owned slaves, they believed that they were participating in the natural order of God. They believed that the white race was the more advanced race and that their responsibility that had been given to them by God was to help the less advanced races develop by protecting them through the institution of slavery which allowed them to keep order in their lives and to introduce to them the gospel. At its best, that's what they believed they were involved in. And this picture is kind of an example of this kind of utopian vision of this idea. The, the tall white guy over there, that's supposed to be George Washington. He's our first president of the United States. And this was a picture which was depicting kind of this utopian view of slavery. In the middle, you have a, a healthy-looking man who's being served by, you know, it's interesting to see how it's all laid out, right? He's being served by his, his wife, you would assume, or his woman. Off in the side here, you have this kind of bizarre little scene here where there's hair being braided. And it's like the children lying down with the lions kind of idea. Everything is just kind of flowing okay in the natural order of things. This was how it was presented in its best form. And to be honest with you, this is what people wanted to believe. They wanted to believe that that was the utopian view of slavery instead of what it really was, which is a brutality of humans against humans, people being ripped from their homes, sent across the ocean. It's said by historians that sailors knew that they were on the right path, not by following the stars, but following the bodies that were still in the ocean. As so many people were dying along the way and just being thrown off the ships, that terrible human abuse of, of, of whipping and torture, this is really what it was. But it was a blind spot, a huge blind spot which allowed people like Thomas Jefferson, who wrote the, the Declaration of Independence, who was himself a slave owner and had several children by his slaves, he could write without a hint of irony or a hint of hypocrisy. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. 
Doesn't it make you wonder, how can a person write this? These words of deep conviction, and yet himself own human beings. That was the question that, that just perplexed me, and I dug into and found out that they had this kind of utopian view of things. But I can assure you that if you had asked anyone in my seminary in the 1990s, is slavery in any way justified, you would have gotten a resounding no. In fact, you would have gotten a pushback that was probably, you know, like people were wondering, what are you thinking, even asking that question? In fact, when I did this paper and I presented it, there were several people in the class who were angry with me because they thought I was justifying the whole thing. I'm saying, I'm not justifying it. I'm just trying to help us understand how did they justify it? What were they thinking? And if you ask most people in my seminary in the 1990s where they would have stood on this issue back in the 1800s, many of them would have said, I would have stood on the side of abolition. I would have stood on the side of getting rid of slavery. I would have been like John Woolman, who was this Quaker who walked around, every, he visited every Quaker in the South to convince them to abolish slavery. They say, that's whose side I would have been on. But then that, the question remains then, if everybody in my seminary would have said I would have been against slavery, then why were so many people for it? Why, was enough, why were so many people for it that they were willing to go to war over it? And we aren't the only ones. Many cultures have this. Germans, you have this in your culture. I mean, during my 10 years here, when discussing politics and ideas that swept through Germany in the 1930s and 1940s, I've never run into a German that said, you know... I might have been caught up in it. I might have been caught up in the whole propaganda. I might have been caught up in the, all the craziness going on around me. Maybe I would have found myself marching in line with the rest of the guys. But I've never met anyone that has said that. I've never met anyone who admitted they might be attracted to the propaganda and to the uniforms, which, by the way, were designed by Hugo Boss. If you wear your uh, suit and it says Boss inside... They designed, he designed these uniforms. So why is that? Why, why and I, I believe that most people who, ask, who are asked the question, would you have participated in this, are genuine. They say, no, I would not have. And they would say that they would be willing to give their freedom and their lives to stand against everything Hitler stood for. But then the question like slavery becomes, then why did so many go along with it? Why did so many go along with it back in the day? By the way, to be fair, the Hugo Boss Company did apologize for the use of forced labor and their involvement in the Nazi movement in 2011. After documents had been discovered in Swiss bank accounts, which tied them to this. But it's understandable. This is what humans are like. It's understandable that we want to kind of hold ourselves away from these crimes in our past, especially if we're unwilling or unaware of our need to have the Holy Spirit in our lives to deeply examine our souls and to see what really is at the root of our willingness to cooperate with evil. Because if you think that we have somehow gotten past our willingness to cooperate with evil, then when I would just point you to the resurgence of ill-informed nationalism around the world as evidence that we really haven't learned anything from history. We have the same issues, but they're just with different labels. For example, there are very few who would call themselves Nazis today. But anti-Semitism is widespread throughout the world, and we're seeing actually a growth of it. Very few people would claim that slavery is a great idea 
but there's a lot of racism still in the world. We may change the labels, but the sins are still the same. We're seeing this all in this war in the Ukraine. You know, I can guarantee you Vladimir Putin doesn't see himself as a villain. He sees himself as a hero. And you may say, and probably everybody in this room would say, that's a deeply misinformed understanding of himself. But he sees himself as a hero who is trying to reestablish the Russian Empire. And he expects that there will be statues built in his honor. He doesn't see himself as a villain. He's the hero of his own story. And he is blind, willfully blind, to what's happening around him. Well, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus attacks the Pharisees. And if you remember from the last couple of sermons, we talked about the woes. Jesus is going after the Pharisees. There's no pulling of punches here. And he attacks their understanding of themselves as the heroes of their story. And he says this, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside you are full of dead man's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our forefathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of prophets. See, the Pharisees in Jesus' time held themselves to this heroic belief that they would have been standing by the side of Elijah as King Ahab and Jezebel were trying to kill him. They had this belief that they would have stood with Jeremiah as his words of prophecy were being cut to pieces by the king and burned into ashes. That they would have stood with him and said, you need to listen to Jeremiah. They believed that they would be the ones that would heed the words of warning given to the kings of Israel. Or maybe they believed that they themselves would have been the ones giving those words of warning of righteous wrath that was coming to the way of Israel and the kingdom of Judah if they didn't change their ways. They believed that they would have been the heroes. But again, the question is, if so many Pharisees in Jesus' time claimed that they would have stood against the unrighteousness of the kingdoms of both Israel and Judah, then why did so few actually make that stand during the time? Why is it only with the hindsight of centuries that they're able to look back and say, oh, well, we would have stood with Elijah. We would have stood with Jeremiah. And we can ask these questions about any of the great wrongs that humanity has been involved with. If so many had seen the event as wrong now, then why did so few see it as wrong then? And are we so different from our ancestors? Or do we have that same nature of evil, but it's just relabeled for our time? I don't know how you would personally answer that question, but the way Jesus answers that question is, we have the same nature of evil from generation to generation. And if we think that we don't, then we are deluding ourselves. And when we delude ourselves, we end up in situations where we're right back in the same mess that we thought we had advanced from years ago. How many of you have heard from this war going on in the Ukraine, how many of you have heard, didn't we learn our lessons from 70 years ago? And what is the answer? Apparently, 
As human beings, no, not really. Jesus says this, he says, So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. So Jesus is saying, you guys are admitting that you are of the same blood, the same DNA as those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the sin of your forefathers. In other words, he's saying, you're no different from your forefathers. You snakes, you brood of vipers. How will you escape being condemned from hell to hell? In other words, Jesus is saying, you guys even acknowledge yourselves that the evil was in your forefathers, and yet you think you're somehow better than them? Why? Where's the proof of that? Why do you think that you're better than them? Because you're better educated? Because you have the space of time to look back and go, well, that didn't work out so great for our forefathers? And then Jesus does a very subtle thing, which he often does. He begins to speak as God. He says this, Therefore, I am sending you prophets and wise men and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth. I wear my glasses. From the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I tell you the truth, all this will come upon this generation. And here we have Jesus going into this sort of, I call it sort of his epic mode. When he begins to look down the road, he goes from the, the sins that are right in front of him with the Pharisees, their hypocrisy, their wickedness, and yet they try and make themselves look good, and he compares them to a tomb. You're all whitewashed. It looks clean on the outside, but inside you're full of dead man bones and all things unclean. He goes from that kind of imminent situation right in front of him to this view of understanding that you know, history is going to show where these Pharisees really stand. And as you know from reading the Gospels, that these very Pharisees who claimed that they would have never shed the blood of the prophets would just in a few days call for the crucifixion, not just of a man of God in Jesus Christ, but the very word of God made flesh. They cried not just for the death of a prophet, they called for the death of God among us. The deepest, most heinous crime of humanity against God. These very ones whom Jesus is talking to are going to commit in just a few days. And Jesus isn't very angry about that fact, which is strange. He kind of pulls back from anger to sorrow when he says this. Oh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem. You who kill the prophets... And those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you weren't willing. Look, your house has left you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So the question then to us, 2,000 years down the road, how do we not become modern-day Pharisees who claim Jesus is Lord now because on the, the hindsight of history, we have so much benefit. We can look back and see how the story played out, and we can claim to be believers. 
But how do we not end up being like the Pharisees who thought they were walking in righteousness but acted like Satan? And in my opinion, this is where the world's wisdom and the wisdom of God begin to clash. Because I think as a species, we've kind of looked over the tableau of, of human, uh, human history and just seen the wreckage that we have wrought upon each other. And it's not an evil that's restricted to one particular group of people. I mean, I've been talking about kind of white Europeans now, but if you want to see the, the full scope of human wreckage, you, you read the history of Genghis Khan and his follow-up act in Kublai Khan, and you'll find out that, that brutality of humans against humans is not reserved to any one particular race. If you read the history of the Japanese shoguns, you'll see the same thing. Africa has their various vicious legends in Shaka Zulu, in the pharaohs, in Hannibal of Carthage. There's all kinds of, you look all throughout history, you see this going on. But the humanistic conclusion with all this thing is to say this. We can overcome the evil in our world by educating the mind. This is basically what humanism says. That if human beings were not just a bunch of ignorant brutes, then we could all get along and do amazing things together. So we need to educate the mind. And this has really become sort of the movement in the last couple centuries. Like you can pretty much go from the Enlightenment time on, educating the mind to make us less brutal. And I think educating the mind is a good thing to do. I think we should be more open-eyed about who we are and what we've been. But this is where God's wisdom and human wisdom begins to go different directions because some think educating the mind is enough to solve all problems and they'll in fact say we need to educate our minds out of the ignorance of religion. We need to educate our minds out of the ignorance of believing in someone that died on a cross 2,000 years ago can somehow affect our lives and they want to have, they put religion in the same category of superstition and ignorance and they want the whole thing to be tossed out. And to be sure, this the idea of religion as a set of rituals isn't something that we believe in. But the idea that there is no God, that we need to just come, come to this enlightened place that is just all about us is where humanism takes us. And, this is, and then the belief is that eventually, if we educate ourselves enough, we'll overcome poverty, we'll overcome war, we'll overcome racism, and we will be Star Trek. Any of you that are fans of Star Trek, if you, if you kind of follow their mind, their thinking, and I like Star Trek, but you have to be clear and you have to understand their whole point of view is that we have this wonderful utopian future because we educated ourselves out of poverty. We educated ourselves out of war. We educated ourselves out of hate. And if you notice, if you're a fan, any of you watch Star Trek or any of the forums of Star Trek? Am I just talking to people who have no idea what I'm talking about? One guy. All right. Dude. So, you know. <laughs> They very rarely talk about things of religion. And when they do bring up religion, it's always this kind of race of people they come across who are ignorant in their superstition and stuck, and they need to be enlightened. This is kind of the, I call it the Star Trek vision of the future. But if you look at humans clearly, we see that the issue isn't just our head. The issue is our heart. And if we just educate our heads, but we don't educate our hearts in any way, we just become more efficient in our sin. We become better able to sin. We become better able to commit acts of cruelty upon each other. And we see that. The Enlightenment starts back in the 1700s. And since then, we haven't had any less wars. And the wars that we have have been increasingly more and more devastating. As we educate our minds, but not our hearts, we just become better at brutalizing one another. 
Because it's our heart that primarily guides us. We like to think that we're, we're guided by logic in our heads. We're not. We're totally not. We are messed up. Sin has broken something. And we may be clear-eyed about what is right and what is wrong until we want something that is wrong. And I've seen this happen in the church, churches that I've been a part of. I've seen it happen in my own life. We sin when we compromise what we know to be right for what we want. And if what we want is not what we know is right, we come up, we start to come up with ways to compromise. We come up with ways to justify it. We come up with ways to somehow make this right, even righteous. And it's like expressed in, the, in, the, in things like, I had a guy one time tell me that God had told him that he should divorce his wife and marry this other lady because this other lady was his soulmate. And as much as I told him, God did not tell you that. There's no way God told you that. He did it anyway. Because he convinced himself. And he convinced himself because what his heart wanted was different from what his head told him. And the heart won. Because the heart is deceitful beyond all things. And is beyond cure. Who can understand it? But this next follow-up verse is interesting. In verse 10 of, of that Jeremiah passage, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind. So our challenge then, as believers, is to let the Holy Spirit renew our mind and examine the condition of our heart. It's a two-step process. It's not just about educating our minds. It's about educating our hearts. And if we don't educate our hearts, then we just become better at sin. And that's what Romans chapter 12 is saying. It says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You know, following God is really very, it's not really so much a, an action of the head, it's an action of the heart. Faith is an obedience and love. Those are actions of the heart. My head might tell me, it doesn't look good. I've had financial advisors, for example, tell Christians, you shouldn't tithe. You shouldn't tithe. Financial advisors go, you just give 10% away of your income. What are you doing? You shouldn't tithe. You should take that and you should invest it in your own retirement. Make it about yourself. And that makes good financial sense. But obedience of the heart says, but I need to be a person that is open-handed. I need to be investing in the kingdom work. God invites me to be a part of this, so I'm going to tithe. Our head and our heart very often are told two different messages. And if our heart is set upon Christ, then we'll, make the, we'll take the step that is based upon obedience, based upon faith, based upon love. And so that's what he says. He goes, let your mind be conformed, and then you're going to be able to know and approve of what God's will is because then your heart will also be educated. And so a renewed mind by the Holy Spirit is necessary to examine the heart in the deep and spirit-led ways. And this is important to understand because I think a lot of Christians, we're told this message of salvation and forgiveness, and that it is true. Christ died for your sins. If you accept him as your Lord and Savior, you repent of your sins, you ask the Holy Spirit to fill your life, and you begin to follow him. But a lot of people stop there because we very much, especially as evangelical churches, tend to push the message of salvation, 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 which is true. The message of salvation should be out in front, but right next to it should also be the message of discipleship. 
that you just don't receive salvation and then let it sit there and wait to die. And this is what a lot of Christians do. The Holy Spirit comes into their life because they're told the message of salvation, but they never embrace the message of growth. They never embrace the message of discipleship, of becoming like Christ. And so you can have Christians that are genuine Christians, but have within them still these, these sins because they don't let the Holy Spirit go deep. You can have Christians who, for example, who are Christians but still racists. You can have Christians who, who believe in following Christ, but at the same time can follow very unchristlike leaders. And while it seems incongruous to us, that's really evidence of the fact the Holy Spirit's education of the heart has not gotten very deep. If we really want our planet to be a better place to live in, which I think we all would like, we need to spend less time inventing you know, the next iPhone and more time examining our hearts. Who are we as a people? And where does God need to reform my heart? But as we're going to see in next week when we start going through uh, chapter 24, and I know it's Palm Sunday, but we're going to be focusing not on his first entrance into Jerusalem because we did that a few weeks ago. We're going to be focusing on what his second entrance is going to be looking like, and he tells us in chapter 24. But just a little heads up, Jesus tells us that we don't have the Star Trek future. That humanity, without the Holy Spirit conforming and changing the hearts of humanity, we're just going to circle the drain until finally it comes to a very difficult place. And that's what Jesus tells us. He's like, yeah, there is no Star Trek. There's a lot of death and destruction ahead. There's a lot of hardness of heart. There's even people claiming to be in Christ, turning against other people who are in Christ. And then God is going to break into our history. But it's not going to be as meek and mild as a baby in the manger as he did the first time. Second time, Jesus is coming with a sword. And he's going to not just clean house, he's going to wreck the house and rebuild it. And there's going to be a new heaven, new earth, and those who are in Christ as their Lord and Savior will live within, with him in this new reality where life will have no more tears and death has been defeated. That's what we look forward to. But it's going to be a rough road before we get to that. So then the question for us as we head into our future is how do we live? How should we live? How do we live in a, play, in a way that our heads and our hearts are educated at the same time? That there is, our eyes are upon Christ, not just intellectually, believing in our heads, yes, this person died upon a cross and rose again from the dead, and that that death is my substitutionary atonement, we can get all theological here, my substitutionary atonement in which I've been predestined by God to participate, blah, 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 blah. How do we go from that to living it in our hearts? Well, Jesus is our example. One reason why we have the Gospels and they're told in kind of a story form is that it's not enough just to hear the words of philosophy that come from Jesus, but to see how he lived it. How did Jesus live this out? How did Jesus express love? How did Jesus stand against unrighteous authority? How did Jesus live the way he wants us to live? And that's the Gospels. The answer to that is, look at him. Look at him. What did he do? Read the Gospels. But if you really want just kind of his words saying, this is how we should live, then this is your, your homework for this, this week. Reread Matthew chapters 5 through 7. 
Matthew chapters 5 through 7 is known as the Sermon on the Mount. And it is how we are to live. It is how Jesus lived. It's how we are to live. If you need a roadmap without becoming legalistic, then there it is, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. If we all as believers, professed believers in Christ, lived that way, the world would be profoundly changed. The problem is that there's a lot of professed believers who choose to live the way the world lives, that they find power in the same way the world finds power. They find wealth and righteousness in the same way the world finds wealth and righteousness. If we were to live the Sermon on the Mount as believers, it would be a completely different world. Because in theory, we have about one billion people on this planet who profess Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Actually, it's more than that, but you have the fringy groups, but kind of of a solid core there. And if that solid core of a billion people truly lived the Sermon on the Mount, it'd be a different world. It'd be a world of conflict because the Sermon on the Mount runs counter to the values of the world. But it would be how we live. Read it. I encourage you to read it this week. Because what you find in there, in the Sermon on the Mount, is the truly heroic life. You know, I started by saying we want to be the heroes of our own story. That Sermon on the Mount is a heroic life. It's a life of sacrifice. It's a life of forgiveness. It's a life of believing that there is a better way and living that better way, even when you do not directly benefit from it. Such as when Jesus says, if you are slapped on one cheek, then turn the other. If a person tells you, give me your, your coat, give them your shirt as well. If they say, carry my bag for, you know, a mile, or two point whatever kilometers, or one point whatever kilometers, I don't know. I've been here 10 years, I still don't understand miles and kilometers. Have them carry it two miles. You know, we don't really directly benefit from any of that, except that our heart benefits in that it's being educated to live as Christ would live. And the only one that really sees the heroism in that is God. But you know what? At the end, that's the only one that needs to see the heroism. Because we're not going to be judged by each other as much as we do it now, judging each other. In the end, we're going to be judged by God. And we're not going to be judged by our standards. Our standards aren't going to matter. They're going to be God's standards. And he has shown us what those standards are in the person of Jesus Christ. So may we live that life, that life where heroism is defined by love, by joy, by peace, by patience, by kindness, by goodness, by faithfulness, by gentleness, by self-control against such a life there is no laws written because this is the kind of life that God calls us to. And it begins by looking clearly at what we are and allowing the Holy Spirit of God to educate who we are. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and we do thank you for, uh, you know, the harsh words that you lay out to the Pharisees because it's better to be laid upon them and we learn from them and learn from that than it to be laid upon us at the end time when we stand before you in judgment and have you say, ah, you hypocrites. 
And so, Father, we pray that you would guide us in these places where we need to have the Holy Spirit go deep into our lives to challenge us. And no matter where we are at in our Christian walk, there are always going to be places where your Spirit can challenge us deeply. And so, Father, as we look at this, may we not just, may we kind of let go of the guilt of the past, which should be easy to do, and let's just acknowledge the fact that we're no better than our ancestors, except for this, maybe. The thing that makes us better is we've been born in a time of privilege where we can look back upon your word. We can look back upon the prophecies of the Old Testament, most of which have already been fulfilled in you. And we can look forward to the future and what stands before us. And may we do so with hearts that are humble enough to be changed and transformed by the power of your Holy Spirit. Push us deep into those waters of reflection without becoming narcissistic, into those waters of of, uh, accountability without becoming incapacitated by guilt, and allow us to accept the fact that we are indeed sinners, and it is in our DNA. But you have also indeed forgiven us, and you have indeed made us new. You have washed us clean through the blood of the Lamb. And that this imperfect lives that we live now that are kind of with a foot in the world and a foot in in your kingdom will one day be made completely new as the heavens and the earths are made new so that we can be in your presence for eternity, living a new way in a new life with our Lord and our Savior and our God. We thank you and we praise you. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen.